All right, how's it going, everybody? So as you know, it's been a really long time since I did a podcast. Today, I wanted to talk about a subject which has been a big part of my life, which is the uh, correlation, I guess, between moral OCD and peace, like a kind of neuroticism, I guess, and how that interplays with faith. The thing we're going to use for today's source material is an article that I wrote, which is really just kind of like a collection of quotes by Soren Kierkegaard. Now, the reason I bring him up uh, is because he was someone who, if you read his earlier writing, and I haven't read much of it, so I don't want to speak too definitively on, on who he was, but the little bit that I've read of his earlier writing shows that he was one of these people, and I sadly relate to this, but he's one of these people that uh, would think about his thinking and then would think about his thinking about his thinking. He kind yeah. of, he drowned in a kind of self-awareness and so he was one of these people who was occasionally extremely poetic, but in general was very miserable and very, mm -hmm. um, very neurotic. I want to mention that because what he's going to say here, this is one of the, the last books that he wrote. And so he wrote this with the background of someone who spent his whole life uh, trying to get to this point. So there are, you know, decades of pain uh, underlying what he's about to, to say here. Uh, and so this comes from that place. Too often it has been overlooked that the opposite of sin is not virtue, not by any manner of means. This is in part a pagan view, which is content with a human measure and properly does not know what sin is, that all sin is before God. No, the opposite of sin is faith, as affirmed in Romans fourteen twenty three. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And for the whole of Christianity, it is one of the most decisive definitions that the opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. So I want to talk about a personal reason why this kind of fear and this kind of neuroticism has uh, retained for so much of my personal life, uh, why it stayed, I guess. And that is, there's this fear in religious people, a wise fear, perhaps, that without a kind of moral perfectionism that will devolve into relativism, into a kind of, this is what I feel like, so I'm going to do it, and this is, and the whole world will go that way, and so that's a wise fear to have, but the problem with it is that it underplays, it overplays my hand, like it overplays the extent to which I create what reality is, by which I mean if you remove yourself from the driver's seat, if you remove yourself from uh, control, the reason that it will not decay necessarily into subjectivism, where nothing is real, is because I don't make the rules. So the way that you see what is sin and what is not, what is right and what is wrong, is by duplicating it over time. That time will tell you that was wrong. Like, time will prove to you, you shouldn't have done that. So, mm -hmm. the simple way of thinking of it is there's two ways to tell what's true. That is duplicating it over a long period of time and duplicating it over a large number of people. And so, a humbler view is, it is killing any possibility for me to have faith by drowning myself in a kind of self-awareness by drowning myself in a kind of fear over my sins, because under the fear over my own sins, 
is the assumption that God is not good and that I am the only one I can trust. And there's a kind of pleasure in being the only one that I can trust. And there's a kind of pleasure in retaining this um, reasonable belief mm -hmm. that God is not good. You see the world, you see the things that happen to each of us. And, you know, the devil comes to each of us and says, are you sure he's good? You know, look at, look at that, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so the process, or I guess the life of faith is that genuinely things which we would deem uh, unthinkable do happen and our control over them is limited and God is still God and you either allow him to be that personally for you still and let him control how the story goes or you don't but in the end the reason that so so the assumption that if i let go of my fear over every thing that i every little thing that i do that i'll devolve into a kind of relativism it's more humble to say it's more honest to say that that fear is based on a, a kind of uh insecurity over my motives meaning which this is perhaps a good thing that I know that my motives aren't as pure as they could be, meaning I know that if I let go of the reins, I'll do a bunch of stuff I shouldn't do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That I'm not just some angel. And that the reason I try to hold these standards legitimately is because I know that my motives are not pure and that I am capable of doing a huge amount of terrible things. <laughs> but again, I didn't make the rules. They didn't they didn't sprout out of the ground when I was born and they won't die when I die. They are a kind of stable reality that over the years and the months, if I'm doing something wrong, life will show me, like things will show me. Oh yeah. Life will show me that they were a destructive choice. Time will show you that. Time is a, is a stable way of separating the one from the other. And uh, and that allows for some peace. So I guess the choice is sort of sovereignty or peace. You can have one, but you can't have both. And so it, when I'm being honest, I, I guess I would say that I would rather have sovereignty than peace. You know, I would mm -hmm. rather justify myself for my sins. I would rather forgive myself for my sins. I would rather judge myself and you because power is more important to me than peace. And if I'm being honest. And so that switch is a life, you know, it's a years long thing, maybe a lifelong thing. I've spent most of my life uh, worry or I guess operating in control, thinking I was in control or trying to enforce what I believed upon those around me because I was running a business most of the time. So I get that. Yeah, you do. There's a lot of perks if, if, when you think you're in control. And, uh, but there's a downside. There's the downside is what you're saying that sometimes what you think you're all in control of can come crushing down. It can, it can fall down. 
in, which is uh, the reality is that I'm not really in control. And that's the reality. The reality is I don't really control other people. Yeah, I guess temporarily you can. And even controlling my own thoughts and my own morality and all that, it's, there is a perk, you know, it, being in control gives, and my, from my perspective, is because I am afraid. If, now that I look back, I mean, I'm 55. As I look at my life, I was really fear-driven. It was fear-based to try to place all the pieces where I thought they ought to go. And faith is not that. Faith is being, faith is saying, I don't, I'm not the author of the story. I'm actually in the bigger story. And John Eldridge talks about that in that book that he titled Epic, where really we're, we're written into God's story, the bigger story. And I'm not the biggest uh, uh, casted member of that story, obviously. So, and if it is, there's a lot of peace. And now at 55, I've done the, I've been able to look at some of my, the, what you said, look at the outcome, and I'm going for peace now. I'm not going for sovereignty. Yeah. I'm shooting for peace. I mean it because it's insanity, doing the same thing over and over. Yeah, the, the bait is I have sovereignty and I have this false sense of being in control. But the truth is, is I do give up that peace. And faith, it comes... Faith is the opposite of sin. How mm -hmm. interesting. I, w I never thought of it until you brought it up. But well, I, it, there's an accuracy to that. This might be something that's a little bit too personal that I need to cut it out. Who knows? But but usually that's where the useful stuff is, right? Mm -hmm. But so when I went through the divorce, and I'm not going to talk about that much because uh, there are other people involved whose you know, privacy is, is also uh, a fact. But in general, when I went through the divorce, I had this deep, like insane fear before that, that anything good that I had tried to do up until that point would be completely destroyed. And, you know, maybe to some extent that was true, but in general, I had this feeling that I was holding the whole world up. And I had this deep, like, unbelievable uh, fear uh, every day because that was the way I believed life was. And so when that happened, and uh, let me put it this way, when that happened, I realized the extent to which I was part of the team, but I wasn't the whole team. And that on some level, the public failure that it was of an ideal that I held and still hold, the fact that I just publicly failed an ideal I had and life continued to move on, the world kept spinning mm -hmm. <laughs> and other people's lives continued and, and just life kept going on, brought me so much peace because I had this deep fear that if I fail at anything, that God will turn away from me. And 
really all he needed me to do was not lie. Like, don't go around telling people that uh, whatever you decided this month is the new ideal. Meaning, uh, you know, marriage is not valuable. Marriage is no good because uh, I failed to hit the ideal. You know what I mean? Don't, don't, just don't lie to people. Don't, don't tell people that Mm -hmm. uh, your new failure is the new ideal. Just don't do that. That's no, good. it's a beautiful thing. I used to think it was. I still think it is. The difference was there were a lot of undeveloped parts of me where I, a lot of places where I should have been brave that I had not been for years and years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that I didn't know. It wasn't even, I couldn't even tell where the gaps were. Mm -hmm. And it revealed in a very painful way, it revealed all these dark things <laughs> that were true about me that I would never have even known to admit and could not see. So I was simply below the ideal of what it can be. And that in a way, this is all God needs from you is to say that thing, that ideal is still an ideal and I am still below it. It is not below me though, because because I had a painful experience associated with it. It remains where it was. Mm -hmm. It is a beautiful thing. It was then, it is now. And I failed to hit it because there are parts of, because I was not who I thought I was. And God is slowly over the rest of my life, you know, pulling me closer as he is with all of us. This is not a unique story, but there's, but I have had a peace since then just knowing in some deep way that I couldn't have known without a public failure that I am not holding all of it together, mm -hmm. that I can contribute and I can make it worse, mm -hmm. but, but not to the extent that I was under the impression. Yeah. You know, there's a scripture that gives me, kind of sums this up for me, what you're sharing about that is back to John Eldridge again with the epic story and you're talking about what you're talking about here about hold on a second my cats are gonna yeah. rip this up i gotta close this door keep okay. going keep going but anyway the the just a short scripture that you're one member of the body of christ and i thought you know there's so much it, it, that really i guess sums up so much and also helps me so much because when i was mr control i was not one member of the body i was the member of this body <laughs> i was yeah. like you know and the bible says in corinthians that he's the head and that where there's many parts and that really really applies right here like i need to stay in my proper place and i remember zach you saying when you go to the ocean it kind of puts you in your per proper perspective because the the size of the ocean the the length of the ocean and the fact that the waves are going to come in whether you live or not that day. I mean, just kind of, God created the oceans. It's he a great, okay, that's a great example because you don't, it doesn't humiliate you. It's not mocking you. Right. It calms you down. Right. It, you that's feel right. safe. That's exactly right. And that's... And this, the stable reality of the ocean, despite whether you it killed you because you drowned or not, the fact that it will continue either way calms you down. It does. And that, think about, right? So 
I think about how much of my walk with God has not had any element of that. Right. Because of control. Me, that's what I've been explaining. I, exactly right. The opposite of that. Where I put myself as the, the top player in this, in this story. Or the top person in this story who's pulling the levers. No, that are, there's no peace in that. There's just, there, there really isn't. Uh, so anyway, how interesting. Faith. And, okay, part that of it, yeah. another reason why um, why we're in this situation is is because it's kind of a Protestant problem in some regards that the, think about the, you know, evangelicalism of the 90s or 80s or whatever. Mm-hmm. Even think about the way that apologetics, a lot of apologetics works, where they're like, we're going to give you this, like, math formula that proves that God exists, you know what I mean? Yeah. And those guys are really smart and, in general, very good people. So I don't want to, like, I want to be careful about what I say about them. But but it doesn't take that long before you see what's missing in that picture. Mm-hmm. If you're going to give me this, like, system of if this, then that, if that, then this, if this, then this, therefore God exists. It's like, you're kind of missing it. The fact is that God is not... <laughs> he is outside of your explanation of him. He is outside of your understanding of him. He is like, mm-hmm. there's an element of unpredictability to God. And if that is not there, mm-hmm. then you won't worship him. And you certainly won't want to worship That's him. That's exactly right. So, the Protestant, so if you go to the average evangelical church, they'll say, you know, how do we spend a whole Saturday glued to our television watching football, but we can't get ourselves to go to church? And what there's... Okay, and they're, and they're trying to say is, like, that we should, like, self-flagellate ourselves into caring about God because we don't really, and there's no reason we would, uh, given our normal, um, given the way we really see God, there'd be no reason why we'd worship him, but we probably should, right? But <laughs> right. you're more honest, you go, no, there's something about football that I think has a, uh, there's an association between football and awe for me. Because of its excellence, because of something about it. For me, there's some kind of attraction to it that God simply lacks in the way that I view him. Because I view him like a formula or a system, or I view him as something Mm -hmm. equal in size to me or smaller, but certainly not big enough that there would be anything fascinating about him. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, God has no sovereignty in that Mm -hmm. way of thinking about it. And so. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how I was going to incorporate this or bring this up, but uh, if you're listening to this, most of the people that listen to this, a lot of them are, you know, friends of ours and friends of mine and stuff, so they already know. But a couple weeks ago, I was told that I was going blind, and the um, the person, the doctor, said that she, under her view, I had 10 to 20 years of vision left, but she wasn't sure, and I think I probably have a bit more than that, but um, for reasons we won't get into details, but but still... Uh, that's been a sobering thing to be told, you know? Mm-hmm. And, again, in a in some strange way, there's a weird kind of peace that comes with it. There's a weird, it's a little bit hard to explain, mm-hmm. but you there's a weird you know. kind of, like, there's a weird kind of soberness that God is unbendable by my perception of him and there, there's some I, I, I'm not sure how but the weight of how serious this is is relieving in some way 
I think what it's doing is giving you the out of being the guy who has to control everything. It, it gives you, I guess, a reality that, hey, you really don't hold all the cards. And that reality is so peaceful. I mean, it really is. It is faith, isn't it? I mean, it's, we're, we're, it's what we've been talking about all day here, or, or since we started. It's faith. And when situations like that come, that's, that's the, one of the off-ramps of the insanity you're in in your head is to start realizing, wait, I never controlled it all to begin with. Yeah. And so, yeah. I think cool. deep down, the, the central question to life itself is, is God good or not? Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. he is, and I don't believe he is, then how do I negotiate that? Right. Meaning, right. if God is good, because good has to come from somewhere, and if the pain that I am seeing personally seems to me unjust, then how do I, how do I go forward? Mm -hmm. Because resentment is always an option. Yeah. But time will prove it an unwise option. Even, yep. I don't care what you believe about God. Resentment will prove, if you look over time, resentment yes. will prove to destroy you and everything you touch. Yes. So, purely, <laughs> it doesn't require a great deal of uh, knowledge or anything to see that it doesn't work. Yes. So, so if God is good, and yep. this is happening to me, and this is happening to us, then... How do you negotiate that? That's and good. one of the ways is how grateful have I really been for sight, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, because until I have any gratitude for each day of sight, only then can I really be an honest, can I honestly be pissed off for every day I do not have it? Like, only if I'm really grateful for you as my dad and all the things you guys did the best you could, the, the, the mm -hmm. ways that you did right, can I really say, but you shouldn't have done that. Right. If I have no gratitude for anything you did well, then how honestly, with what authority, can I come down on the things you did wrong? Right. So if I have no right. gratitude for, for life up until this point, for each day of all the things that I right. have been given, then with what authority do I critique God? That's real good. Wow, there's several, there's a several aha things here, and that's one of them. It, yeah. So I want to I want to end this with uh, another quote from Kierkegaard here, and this is about the concept of despairing over your sin, and this is something that uh, I've spent the last few years trying to um, come out of, and um, the stuff I mentioned earlier is a real has been a real blessing to to leave this way of, of thinking and anyway we're not out of the woods yet to be clear but so these are just a couple um a couple quotes by Kierkegaard about dis despairing over your own sin and 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 uh let me just get into that despairing over one's sin is the expression oh that's my stomach hold on <laughs> start over I can cut that <laughs> so this is the the idea and he's going to use kind of philosophical language and stuff but but uh, but there's a lifetime of pain behind these words. Despairing over one's sin is the expression for the fact that sin has or would become consistent in itself. He talked about how pain is essentially uh, a lack of 
um, continuity so that when you experience pain, it's because there's some like open loop basically. So that when you just want to despair over your own sin, when you sin and then you desire to punish yourself for it, it's because sin is wanting to finish the loop and, 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 and continue itself because there's a kind of friction if you, if you change the game. So despairing over one sin is the expression for the fact that sin has or would become consistent in itself. It will have nothing to do with the good, will not be weak enough to hearken once in a while to any other sort of talk. No, it will hear only itself, have to do only with itself, shut itself in with itself, yea, enclose itself with one enclosure more, and by despairing over its sin, secure itself against every assault of the good or every aspiration after it. It is conscious of having cut the bridge behind it and so of being inaccessible to the good as the good is to it. So that though in a weak moment it were to will the good, this would nevertheless be impossible. Sin itself is a detachment from good, but despair over sin is a second detachment. I can never forgive myself for it, he says. And this is supposed to be the expression for how much good dwells within him and what a deep nature he is. But this despair is far from being a characteristic of the good. Rather, it is a more intensive characterization of sin, the intensity of which is a deeper sinking into sin. The fact is that during the time he victoriously withstood temptation, he was, in his own eyes, better than he actually was. He was proud of himself. It is now in the interest of pride that the past should be entirely left behind. But in the relapse, the past suddenly becomes present again. And this reminder, his pride cannot endure. And hence, the deep distress. But the direction of distress, this distress, is evidently away from God manifesting a hidden self-love and pride, instead of humbly beginning by thanking God for helping him to withstand the temptation as long as he did, acknowledging before God and himself that this is, after all, much more than he had deserved, and so humbling himself under the remembrance of who he had really been. Brother Lawrence, simply present yourself to God as if you are a poor man knocking on the door of a rich man and fix your attention on his presence. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so this idea that pride pride always finds a way. It does. I mean it's you're right. And so this idea that you know, I can't forgive myself for it, or I will try to forgive myself for it. It's just saying, no matter what, I will play God. In church, out of church. That's good. No matter what label I give myself, I want to hold all the cards. And that I have no desire deeper than that. Not peace, not enjoying life. I, there is no desire deeper than retaining how the story goes and being its central character. I would rather, in some deep way, I would much rather be a martyr that the world mistreats than to just be one of the players. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I guess 
and to, to, to wrap this all up in the way that he wrapped it up is that, you know, when you, when you do sin, the wiser choice is to remember the person you actually are and to remember that it isn't what you project and to remember that you used to be reliant on God's kindness toward you and that you still are. And yeah. to simply present yourself to God as if you were a poor man knocking on the door of a rich man. Yeah, and as we close that, we've been talking in our Tuesday night group, men's group about denial, which we were doing some recovery stuff. And I can see this fitting really tight in here about taking an honest look at who you really are versus living a life of who you think you are is very different. And denial is, is creating a, a reality. And you, you know, it's interesting that it, it comes down to honesty and it comes down to the reality that we are fallen creatures and we're not God and that we have faith is where we go from here. I, I like it. You know, anything but that is sin. I, I think that's on the money. Yeah. Well, I hope this has been um, useful to you guys and hopefully it won't be... Uh another like eight months or whatever before before we do another podcast also if the beginning was uh slightly stilted it's hard to get back in the train of thought i guess but um yeah i appreciate you guys listening and i hope this has blessed you